From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez, and this is The Explainer. This movement really had the makings of uh, kind of a new civil rights era. In July 2016, a white police officer shot a black man who was lying on the ground with his hands in the air. Last week, the officer testified that he thought the man was a hostage and accidentally shot him. He was aiming for an autistic man sitting in the street holding a toy truck. The jury deadlocked on two counts of felony attempted manslaughter against a police officer, with a single juror holding out for a guilty verdict. With us today to look at the case and a wider discussion of officer-involved shootings in the Black Lives Matter world is Donald Jones, criminal and constitutional law professor and author of three books, including Dangerous Spaces Beyond the Racial Profile. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Don. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Let's just start out by reminding our listeners what happened in July 2016 with the mental health therapist, Charles Kinsey. Charles Kinsey was working at a group home, and his job was to, at that time, to retrieve a uh, patient at the home, uh, Arnaldo Soto, who had wandered off. And so this is a normal day. He's simply trying to take charge of of of, of a mental health patient who has wandered off. And unfortunately, uh, the mental health patient has a toy uh, truck in his hand. And as Charles Kinsey is innocently trying to bring him back, someone has reported the mental patient with the toy truck as a man with a gun. And so the police come in arms, in anxiety, attempting to uh, disarm what they think is a suspect with a gun. Now, Charles. Now, what video shows uh, is that a child, that Charles Kinsey had his hands in his in the air, and he said clearly, "the the suspect, the person you think is a suspect, is unarmed." And so, from everyone who saw the video, they were appalled when, despite his warnings and protestations, that and the and the mental patient looks so innocent and so. Uh, harmless. Nonetheless, a police officer with a rifle fires three times and hits Charles Kinsey, who is also unarmed, despite the fact he has his hands up. And And the purported hostage in the situation. Right. And so the so people are incredulous. Frederica Wilson says she's appalled. Everybody saw it. It reels back in horror. Now, what's interesting, too, is is that before the shooting occurred, an officer on the scene radios to everyone that this child is, in fact, unarmed. And despite the radio broadcast, despite Charles Kinsey holding his hands in the air, despite the fact that the child is holding nothing more than a toy truck that has a shape of a gun, uh the officer shoots and it's hard to explain. It's difficult to watch. It's emotionally wrenching. Uh, And that led to a a criminal trial uh, in which officer John, uh, I think Al Seda, I don't know if I have his name right, uh, was prosecuted for manslaughter. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's interesting is that these are human situations. And what I think we're doing is we're grafting a narrative onto these situations, uh, which has a lot to do with uh, an incredible pattern of injustice that and savage injustice that people of color are experiencing in urban America now 
and have been experiencing for many years. Uh, and it's certainly true that, uh, for example, in 2019, uh, 209 people were uh, were shot already. Um, and uh, in 2018, 1,100 people are shot. In 2017, another 1,100 people are shot. And these Tw- were officer-involved shootings? Right. And and blacks are three times as likely to be killed by a police officer than a white. And 30% of the blacks who are killed are unarmed. Mm-hmm. And so despite the fact they're unarmed, they're killed. Uh, despite the fact that Blacks are, in this post-Civil Rights era, equal citizens, three times as likely to be shot by the police. Mm-hmm. And it's that narrative which is driving the outrage. Okay. Well, you contend that the the issue of, of officer-involved shootings is, is larger than just bad apples. Yes, yes. I think that, uh, you know, one of the problems that we have is systemic uh, discrimination within the criminal justice system. And let me give you a description of what, some of that systemic destruction, uh, systemic discrimination is uh, in New York uh, when New York was prosecuting its war on guns. And that was the name that they use. Uh, and ironically, you know, many of the police officers and officers in charge of uh, the commanders were black. Uh, they uh, disproportionately targeted neighborhoods, which were predominantly black and brown. And so uh, I think black neighborhoods were half as likely to possess guns, but yet they were twice as likely, people who live in those neighborhoods were twice as likely to be stopped. And this was all revealed in Floyd versus New York, the New York stop and frisk case, twice as likely to be stopped, half as likely to possess the guns. And people were appalled by this disparity. Uh, and what's happening is, is that the New York Police Department are, is, were targeting uh, neighborhoods which were high crime areas targeting high crime areas and those so-called high crime areas almost always happen to be black and brown. Mm-hmm. And I think that's due to the, the connection between poverty and crime. So whether they were doing consciously or not, systemically, they were targeting black and brown neighborhoods. And it's the systemic disproportion, which I think is driving the disproportion in blacks being shot so often. Mm-hmm. So the Black Lives Matter movement really had its roots in in Florida after um, the self-appointed Neighborhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman uh, was acquitted in the murder of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Can you talk a little about how the movement has, as it gained momentum, changed the landscape and and how we, we may or may not view police shootings seven years after Trayvon's murder? The Black Lives Matter movement comes alive almost as if a generation which had been sleeping was waking up when Trayvon Martin was shot by George Zimmerman, who was the neighborhood watchman that you mentioned. Trayvon Martin was an innocent child who had just gone to the store to buy a bag of Skittles. And uh, coming back from the store in a hoodie uh, and saggy pants, the uh, George Zimmerman sees him and thinks this must be one of the people uh, who has is responsible for the break-ins in his neighborhood in Sanford. And he follows him uh, without probable cause, without reasonable suspicion, based on the fact of that he's black and he's wearing a hoodie. And uh, Trayvon sees himself followed by a strange man and is frightened. And somewhere in that confrontation filled with fear 
and racism, Trayvon Martin is shot by George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin being unarmed. And his death, the death of an innocent child, uh, the death uh, at the hands of uh, uh, an unarmed innocent child, at at the hands of a man who's armed, much older than him, uh, woke up a generation of uh, mostly blacks, particularly the three black women who started it, uh, and they began a national campaign and ignited a national movement for accountability uh, with respect to police shootings and reform of the criminal justice system in as far as it deals with people of color. Uh, was it, it just the time was right or the incident was so horrific? It, well, it wasn't I think that it, there were there's a con, there's shootings a con, before. I think there's a convergence of factors. I think one factor is, is the technological change, the social media is far more present with us now. We're much more of a global visit, village connected by the internet, by Twitter, by Facebook, by a variety of, of means that were impossible before. Uh, people can blog using, their, using, they can do a podcast in their back, backyard. And so I think the technological, uh, technology has given us access to communicate with each other in a way that was possible in the past only by mainstream media outlets. And uh, at the same time, I think it was also true that you had a generation coming of age, so what I call a post-civil rights generation, who had the belief that these problems were solved, that we were uh, becoming post-racial, and Obama had been elected, it's a new day. And this shattered that complacency. This shattered the sense that there was anything like a post-racial America. Uh, the shattering of the narrative, the access to global uh, interconnectivity, all of that comes together to, to facilitate and help drive this movement. Mm-hmm. Yes, never before did we actually see black men being shot by police in real time. Right, right, right. The the cell phones were started clicking more and more, um, and it's interesting that and and we have a, this occur this occurring during the time when we had a black presidency. Uh, I'm nostalgic for that era, by the way, and so th- this movement really had the makings of uh, kind of a new civil rights era. It brought together people from all walks of life. Uh, and many of them were college students. Many of them were uh, people who were far more educated than the people who staffed the civil rights movement of the 1960s mm-hmm. and 70s. And where do you see the progress in in the last seven years? Well, I think that they've made, made an, had an enormous impact. I think you see a, a cottage industry of lawyers, therapists coming together to try to figure out how we heal this. Uh, they've, uh, they developed de-escalation programs. Uh, there is a, there's a new spate, a new generation of de- district attorneys who are now reform-minded, who want to end this, uh, who want to make things better. So you, you you have a new generation of district attorneys. You have new sets of training programs. You have law schools, which are now focusing on this problem that was invisible before. So it's gone from invisible to visible. Uh, it's gone from uh, no attention to being on the front burner and being pushed by a new generation of professionals who are now wielding in many cities the reins of power uh, in Philadelphia, uh, in New Orleans, uh, 
blacks, people who are allies to civil rights movement are taking the reins of power. So there is a, a new sense that we're going to hold police accountable. In Miami, you have Don Horn, who uh, is one of the leaders in the, in the state's attorney's office, who is helping to make this a reality. So much more response from uh, in Baltimore. You had a district attorney who was black who tried to uh, indict six Baltimore policemen who were guilt, who she felt were guilty in the killing of Freddie Gray. It didn't work, but it's symbolic of a new wave of leaders, a new sense of accountability that it's steamrolling itself throughout our society. So you think in 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 the case that we're we're talking about the trial last week. Yes. That case wouldn't have made it to trial, even yes. though it didn't. Well, there wouldn't have the, been an indictment. Right. And then we had two instances in the last week in Miami, one where a black woman was shot to death by a police officer yes. in a traffic stop. Yes. And a woman who called 911 because someone had pointed a shotgun at her and she's taken down hard and arrested. Yes. And I think not that- there yet. I, th- I think that the problem is still there. And I think one of the problems you have is that you can't, I think, arrest. We cannot arrest our way out of the problem. We can't prosecute our way out of the problem. The problem is structural. And by structural, I mean there's several components to it which go deep into our society. So, for example, one aspect of the problem is that blacks still to this day are disproportionately poor uh, and disproportionately they have less power. Uh, another a- aspect that's troubling is is that we still have a culture which uh, is deeply polluted with racial stereotypes. And so, for example, if you look at the news, t- even today, the news in black communities is disproportionately focused on drugs and violence. Uh, if we look at the films that are produced about blacks in inner cities, they're typically films about blacks operating as thugs, gangsters, and drug dealers. And so these stereotypes that are drawn from culture are, it's almost like it's, it fills the atmosphere and we breathe it in like smog. And so policemen who are part of the culture breathe this in as well. And so I think it affects everything from who they arrest, who they stop, to who they kill. Where do we go from here? Well, I think that what we've got to realize is that we've got to, there are bad apples, but I think that it's more than a few bad apples. It's a rotten barrel. And that rotten barrel represents the culture of stereotyping that exists. And it represents institutional policies and practices which need to change. This business that we're going to police by high crime areas, which tends up to mean, which tends to mean that we're going to over police communities of color. We've got to change that. Uh, I think that the whole idea that we actually need to uh, shoot first or to rush in first has got to change. We've got to think in terms of how we avoid confrontation, how we avoid conflict, of how we we create a situation where we don't have to make arrests. Uh, one example would be to, for example, with marijuana, uh, uh, there should be no arrest. Right now in Florida, medical marijuana is legal, uh, but uh, it's still a crime to possess uh, marijuana for recreational use. And while it's discretionary to arrest someone for marijuana possession, uh, police uh, still do arrest people for marijuana. That shouldn't be. We should eliminate crimes 
that su- such as that in in uh, Fort Lauderdale. People are getting arrested for riding bicycles without registration. We still have this. Uh, bicycle bicycles? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, there, there still is this uh, broken windows concept that by having zero tolerance for certain kinds of crimes, that's going to reduce bigger crime. And I think that we've got to reexamine and rethink that. I think we need to have less arrests, less people put in jail. And instead of trying to use the police as the means of bringing order, we've got to use education. We've got to find other ways, alternatives to police confrontation. Uh, and I think that's really where law schools come in as well. We have to help the police uh, think through how we develop not just uh, police with more empathy, but police policies and practices which reflect a new level of awareness and understanding. Here, here. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform and tell your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's show was brought to you by the Managing Compliance Across Borders program at Miami Law, June 26th through the 28th. The interactive executive level program is aimed at compliance, risk, and audit management counsel and executives from firms and corporations around the world. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu backslash CLE.